Uh, we're going to spend some time studying the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 can be found on page 960 in the black Bibles you'll see under the chairs there. So if you want to grab one of those, you can open that up. If you don't have a Bible at home, please keep that. We'd love for you to have your own Bible. We have boxes and uh, want to get you in the habit of opening this up and, and reading it along with us as a community. Um, I have a little quick announcement before we move on to the text, and that is that one of our dear brothers, C.J. Flores, uh, Candelario Flores, passed away yesterday. And so please pray for Marilee, his wife. Um, C.J. was a deacon here. They were involved here for several years. Um, so we're just grieving with her. I want to encourage you to pray for her. And we don't have all the details of, an, of a memorial or a funeral yet, uh, but hopefully we'll know more soon. You could email the office if you were friends with the Flores family and want to be a part of that. Okay, so we're continuing this series in 1 Corinthians 14. The series through 1 Corinthians 14, uh, or the series through the last parts of 1 Corinthians, now in chapter 14, we've called the series at the end of the book, What's Wrong with Church? Because we see this kind of continual problem stuff that comes up at these, these last chapters. And what we've said, if you trace it all the way back to the beginning of the book, is that the central problem is division and pride, kind of focusing on self. And when we focus on self, we, we diminish the cross, we hide the cross, we veil the cross, and we're not glorifying Jesus. But when we focus on God and what he's done, and when we love God and love others, then, then the world can see Jesus. And so that's kind of been the, the big overarching application for every chapter at this last section of the book, is that we would look back to Jesus and magnify what he has done for us. So this week, as he's getting into the nitty-gritty of how we worship together, we're calling it Build Churches with Order. Build Churches with Order. So we're just wrapping up chapter 14. want to encourage you, if you're new, we're having new people come every week to, to go back and listen to some of the other stuff we've done here, because we've been covering some controversial territory in 1 Corinthians, stuff about uh, speaking and praying in other languages versus speaking in clear language, and just a lot of different stuff last week. We laid the groundwork last week that the emphasis for the church should be on speaking clear language, that we would communicate in a clear way. And we said that those methods really matter. Are we together testifying to God's goodness in a language that everyone can understand? That was the essential emphasis of the beginning of this chapter. And that's what God is calling all of us to. This week, he's focusing on order. And I just have to confess a little bit of personal discomfort to preach on order, okay? Those of you that know me are smiling because I'm not a real orderly person, okay? How many of you have ever seen my desk? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, my wife, you, yeah, okay. Uh, less so people have seen my closet or my shed, which is even scarier than my <laughs> desk. I'm, I'm sorry, honey. The Lord gave me a gift of order when he gave me my wife 29 years ago. Thank you, uh, but I don't bring a lot of it on my own. And so as I was wrestling with this, I was like, like what's the essential piece here, right? Because to be fair, I'm not just saying this to let myself out uh, you know, of, of this problem. I don't think he's saying have orderly personalities. I don't think that's actually what he's saying. He's saying there's a very specific kind of order, right? He's zeroing in on the order of how we do church together. So I might have a, a messy desk, but out of that mess of my desk, hopefully week to week, I, I pull out some some clear, orderly, scriptural truth week to week, right? Studying and, and writing. And so, again, I don't think it's so much about what's going on in the desk, but it's like, what are we doing together as a community? Are we ordering our lives on God's Word? This is such an important thing to me that 
Like when I do have nightmares, often it's the nightmare of showing up and not having studied it and not having something to give you that's orderly and clear. Now, just so you're encouraged, that's never happened, okay? (laughs) Maybe someday it will, right? But I actually spend every day studying the text, a little part of every day, not all day, every day, but I spend time every day studying it so that we can understand it, so that we can talk about it, we can study the Scripture. So this is kind of the primary order, I think, is going back to last week, using clear speech, who is Jesus, what has he done? I think as we spread it out in this week's text, what we're going to see is self-focus, making it about me, causes disorder and chaos, Right? When you come in and you're like, it's all about me. I got to do my thing and I don't care what anybody else says and I got to express my gift and it's about my gift. When we have that attitude that causes selfishness, disorder, it's hard for us to have an orderly expression of the clear truth of scripture. So Paul's going to be kind of leading this community saying, hey, Corinthian church, all of us, we need to be orderly. And what's the order? Well, the order is ultimately about looking at who God is, loving one another, serving one another. So let's read the text. We've got some strange things in the text, uh, difficult things. Again, last week we talked about tongues versus prophecy. And we said the essential difference between tongues and prophecy is tongues is just the Greek for a foreign language. So that's speaking in a foreign language that people don't understand versus clear speech. Prophecy is speaking in a way that people do understand the truth. And we said we want to be all about speaking clearly, in a way that people can understand. So that's going to come up again in this text, starting in verse 26, chapter 14. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Again, that's this theme, building each other up. Verse 27, if any speak in a tongue or foreign language, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Again, I hope you're seeing this theme. He keeps saying you can be orderly. You can defer to one another. You can promote the building up of the entire community. He goes on, verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. It's one of our key verses there. Verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Admittedly, a weird verse. We'll deal with that later, okay? If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Again, a summary. All things should be done decently in order. We're going to come from different backgrounds. We have different perspectives on order, right? We have different perspectives on what's normal in church life. But he's like, here's this governing principle. Build each other up, do things beautifully, decently, and in order. That's our governing principle. It's going to probably look like different things in different places, but we should all be rowing in that same direction together. Um, I'm going to pray now that the Holy Spirit would meet us here 
we think that the most essential thing that the Holy Spirit does in our lives today is help us to trust in Jesus and see what he's done. And the second most important thing that we can do is then live that out in our lives, right? So the Holy Spirit works supernaturally in our lives that we would see Jesus and what he's accomplished, and then we'd start obeying him. We'd start following what he says. And so we want to pray that this time together as we study the word would be a supernatural, spirit-led time. So let me pray. God, we ask that you would be with us and that as we study your word and as we talk about your word and as we think about your word, that your spirit would be here with us and open our minds to see how good you are, to magnify you and your goodness, that, that you, Father, planned our redemption, that you, Son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for our sins, and now you, Holy Spirit, you're applying that to our hearts. You're convicting us. You're making us aware. You're helping us to see the truth. You're giving us the power uh, to put away sin in our lives. Would you meet with us now, God? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a simple outline for the text. Again, a lot of weird stuff in the text. And and just overarching Bible study principle, when you come across weird verses, don't just hold on to the weird verse by itself, okay? That's just a basic principle. When when you find a cult or a, a church that's engaging in false teaching, often what they've done is they've said, we're now the only ones that know how to explain the weird verse, right? Like that's what they do. And they build a whole ministry around the weird verse, What we want to do is we want to say, well, what are the things that are repeated again and again in Scripture? And what are those main principles, those main ideas? And then we're going to kind of interpret the harder to understand things in light of the main repeated principles. So that's just a a Bible study method thing that we're going to continue to do here. Make the main things the main things, secondary things. Say, okay, we're, we're less sure about that, but it seems to be interpreted in light of these main things. So here's the simple outline for some confusing texts. Number one, order honors others. It's a, it's a social thing. Order honors other things. How do we relate to each other in our uh, fellowship, our small groups? You know, we do kind of more orderly, more scripted things in the large gatherings, but then we're a little more spontaneous, a little more interactive in our smaller groups. So a lot of what he's describing here can be kind of parceled out in our big gatherings and our small gatherings both together are an expression of some things that were happening in the early church and just small house churches. So how do we honor others? How can we do that in our daily life? The second point is order is countercultural. Order is countercultural. We don't want to be countercultural just, just to be weird, but we're going to have to be countercultural. Order is countercultural. And then thirdly, order relies on biblical authority. Order relies on biblical authority. In the end, that's kind of our governing left-right boundary. The Bible is what tells us uh, what's weird and what's not, what's okay and what's not. It's our authority. So number one, order honors others. We see this in the first few verses, verses 26 through 33, order honors others. Order means honoring others by deferring to them, by valuing their upbuilding more than your own desires. You hear that? I'm trying to clearly define this. We're not consumers, but we're brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. That's what we're called to. So We want to be thinking about how we can build one another up in the truth. So order is about deferring and honoring other people, seeing their gifts. Back in chapter 12, we're like, we all have different gifts. My gift's not more important than your gift. We all have different gifts to contribute, and we want to honor each other. Be willing to be silent sometimes. He uses that word a lot in this text. Be willing to be silent, which means you stop speaking so that someone else can speak. That's just a good social habit anyway, right? (laughs) 
but it's also really effective for drawing out the truth of what God's teaching us and seeing the way that God's specially gifted other people in the body of Christ and how we need to learn from that. So we don't want to demand that our gift be expressed. That's a, that's a bad attitude to come into church with, like, I've got this gift and I've got to express it, right? No. Sometimes our, we're called to, to lift up others' gifts and defer to them, and that can really uh, help our, our fellowship, our, our relationships to be orderly in the sense of loving and peaceful, right? Because that's the building up of others, the love of others. Chapter 13 is kind of how uh, order is defined in the church. So he says in verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now, some people teach this as this is what you have to do. This is what church is, right? This is what you have to do, as if this is like a command, but, it, but it's not a command. This is a description, He's like, yeah, when you come together, you kind of have these different things. What do you do with the different things that you bring together, right? So this is more of an observation of this is what life together looks like. We bring different gifts into the door. It's not a complete list. He's not saying this is what should happen at every worship service. He's just like, this is kind of some of the stuff you're bringing in. What do you do with the stuff that you bring in to the body of Christ? Well, he says, let all things be done for building up. So again, he gives kind of a smattering of different things and says people bring in different stuff. And what's the governing principle? Build each other up. Verse 27, if any speak in a tongue or a foreign language, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Again, he says repeatedly, we saw this last week, don't even do it if there's not an interpretation, because the whole point is that we'd be able to understand what's going on. Verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. We're going to come, this, uh, come back to this at the end, but the weighing is evaluating by the scriptural standard, by the biblical authority. So again, another way to say this is, if I have a vision, if I have a dream, if I have a prophecy, if I have something I think is from God and I want to share it, I don't get to demand that everyone submit to me. We can't come in a demanding way to each other. We always have to come in with an honoring of others' sensitivity of like, I th- I think I have some advice for you. What do you think? Does it seem biblical? Right? We have to have this kind of deferring to others' attitude. Others will weigh what is said. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Verse 32 is really important. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Again, we're not, we're not out of control. You might have grown up in, in contexts like this where to be spiritual is to give yourself over to being led by something out of your control. But Paul said last week in the earlier section of 1 Corinthians 14, he was like, no, you can, you can be led by the Spirit and led by your mind at the same time. You can still operate with self-control and be led by the Holy Spirit. Don't give in to the notion that to have the Holy Spirit is just this like, woo, I can't control myself. No, he's saying there's still self-control. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Verse 33, again, this big governing principle, God's not a God of confusion, but of peace. It's, it's resting in the character of God. He's not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, again, caveat, we have different standards of what's confusing and what's not. You know, we have different cultural standards, and so we've got to give each other some margin there, depending on where you grew up, your zip code, the way you were educated, your family culture, your ethnic background, what country you grew up in. We have kind of different left and right boundaries of what is orderly and what's not. So we want to give each other grace 
when we think about that. But there's a big idea that we want to build each other up. We want to not be confusing, but be clear, be orderly. And he's giving very specific instructions here of like, you actually defer to others. You, you honor other people. That's a basic way that you learn to interact in the body of Christ. Christian maturity requires humility and taking on the posture of being a learner. Um, I, I get to be like chief teacher at this church, right? So does that mean, well, I'm, I'm the one that's in charge of all the teaching, so I don't have anything to learn from people. Is that what that means? Just so you know, that is not what that means, okay? Just, just to be clear, I have a ton to learn from you. I, I need you to shape me and exhort me and, and call me to truth and encourage me in my faith. I, I need you. So I have this privilege of getting to be the one that teaches the most week after week, but I still have much to learn. I'm a human being just like you're a human being. And what we saw in 1 Corinthians 12 is we all have different gifts in the body of Christ. There's no like magical person in this room that has an authority that can't be questioned, right? We're all a family together. And so we need to learn from each other and we need to honor one another and listen to one another. What does it look like for us as a body to be listening? Um, Some of the things that I've done even to just kind of try to filter what you hear taught week after week is, is giving a trial run of my sermon to some of the staff and, and some of the uh, interns and folks that work at the church to be like, what, what do you think? Is that confusing? Is that clear? What, you know, give me some feedback. And that helps me to be a listener even as I'm being a speaker, right? And I know in your own lives, you have, you have much to, to teach me and much to teach each other. So I just want to make application here of one of the ways that we can be orderly and honor each other is by asking good questions. Instead of always wanting to speak, actually asking the other person, the other brother and sister in Christ, like, what is God teaching you? And I just want us to get better at that. Are are you known as the person that always has something to say, or are you known as someone that asks good questions? I don't know if you have friends that are like this that are really good at asking questions, but my wife and I joke about this sometimes. We're with that friend that just puts us at ease and loves us and draws out our heart and asks us good questions, and we walk away, and we're like, no, I did it. I just talked about myself, right? Because they were asking me questions. So here's the goal. You want to be that person, okay? You want to be that person that asks good questions. And here's some questions that we could, we could ask. Uh, what's God teaching you? It's a good, simple question to ask a brother and sister in Christ. What's God teaching you right now? God's teaching all of us different stuff. We're all made in the image of God. He teaches us in different ways. What's God teaching you? How did you first meet Jesus? We have a lot of friends in the church. We don't even know their story. Like, how'd you first learn about faith? How'd you start walking with Jesus? Share that story. What's God doing in your life? How'd you first meet Jesus? Tell me some things in your life that have really helped you to grow in faith. What are some of those things? Can you share those with me? Because God, God uh, grows us in, in different ways. Uh, what would you do differently as an experienced parent or husband or wife or as a single, like, How could I learn from you and what God's teaching you in your calling in this certain sphere of life? How do you integrate your faith with your work? What does it look like for you to be faithful in the particular job that you have? Can you share with me some of your favorite verses? What are your favorite verses? Do you have verses that really help you to grow in your faith? Do you have songs or hymns that you come back to in your dark moments or in your discouraging moments that help you to remember Jesus. These are some questions that we could just be asking each other. We could be the kind of body where we're deferring to one another and honoring one another and and learning from the gifts of other people. A lot of times I think what happens is I'm like, oh, this person's gifted at that, 
so I'll just let them do their thing. Instead, it can be helpful to say, whoa, how, how'd you do that? How'd you know to do that? You know, I can start learning from different gifts because we're, we're gifted in different ways, and it's pretty cool to hear how God is teaching us these different things. Okay, the second point is that order is countercultural. Order is countercultural, and as I said this at the beginning, um, Christians have to have this, like, resolve to be countercultural and, and stand against the crowd, but we also want to hold back from the temptation to think that the height of spirituality is to be as weird as possible, Right? So those are kind of the left-right boundaries. Christians are always falling off the horse one side or the other. We're like, I'm not going to be a weird Christian. I'm going to be cool. And and all non-Christians will always think I'm cool and agree with everything I say. Well, no, Jesus says pretty clearly that the world hated him, and so the world's going to hate you too if you follow Jesus. But he gives us hope, right? In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus guarantees it. But take heart. He says, I've conquered the world. I've overcome the world. So it's going to be okay. We're, going to, we're called to be countercultural, but it's going to be okay. Jesus is with you. The other side, though, is this kind of Phariseeism where we, we believe that we're justified or we're more holy the more weird we are, right? Like, okay, to be faithful to Jesus means sometimes I've got to be weird, so that, that means I'm just going to be as weird as I can, right? Every weird Christian thing that comes down the pike, I'm going to embrace that and just push hard. No, you, you're not more holy by being more weird either, right? So we've got to Got to walk this out. Now, specifically this text, verse 34 and verse 35, the specific countercultural here thing thing here is on gender. So preached on this before. You can go back and listen to the previous sermons. You don't have to agree with me or our church's stances uh, to come here and be a part of what the church is doing. Uh, We wouldn't let you teach on the subject if you disagree with us, but but like we're a fellowship and we know we, we disagree on things and, that, and that's okay. We just want to reassure you that that's all right, that we have some disagreement on some of these things. Um, but this is about gender relationships. And I just want to paint the picture real broadly for you. There's kind of three options, I think. There's really a million, but there are three options, right? One is kind of a hyper-traditionalism that sees that men are like superior to women. And we would say that's wrong. The other extreme would say there's no difference And to say that there's ever a difference in the roles that genders play is to be this view. We say, well, no, that's not exactly right either. It's possible to walk this middle way where we say there are differences in gender roles, and yet we're still equal before God. And that's that's what Christianity articulates. As a matter of fact, Christianity took this patriarchal culture that both in the Jewish world and the traditional Roman world was demeaning to women and elevated women in incredible ways that had never been done before, honored women, protected women. And some of that has stabilized civilization so that now out of that bed of stabilization, there's grown this fruit of maybe some extremes that we would say is, is going too far and saying there's no distinctions in the genders, right? And so it's just important to say it's okay to be countercultural. Where are we on the spectrum culturally? Well, On the spectrum, culturally, we're way over here. We live in a culture that even if you're committed to the Scripture, when Paul says something like women should be silent, you're like, whoa, Paul, come on. Like, what are you saying, right? And it it bugs us. And so we just have to recognize that when we're reading the Scripture. There are are things that just jump out at us because they seem way out of bounds of what our culture has trained us to understand. So let's, let's try to figure out what it actually says, right? So 34, he says this. As in all the churches, that's the end of verse 33, but most of your translations, it's got like a little paragraph break. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent 
in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, those are some hard verses, right? So let's look at verse 34 first. He's saying, as in all the churches, women should keep silent in the church. Now, we've got to recognize it can't be absolute silence, right? Number one, just common sense. Does this mean it's wrong of you to say, hi, Dave, if you're a woman when I walk in the room? Like, if it's absolute, then it's wrong for you to say anything. So we know it's not like absolute, absolute. So so what's he saying here? Um, The other thing that we know, to kind of check that, because you might be going, well, Dave, maybe it is wrong for me to say hello to you in church. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11 says women are praying and prophesying and blesses that and says that's good. So women are praying and women are prophesying, speaking the truth in an understandable language, and that's a part of our fellowship. So what kind of silence is this? Okay, another clue is he's been saying to the prophets and the preachers and the people that are speaking that, you know, if someone else has a message, you can be silent, you can stop, let them speak. So there's this temporary use of the word silence that's worked all through the text. It's used that way in, in many places. Like it's temporarily silent, it's not permanent silence all the time, no matter what. So, so what is he saying here? Well, I think in context, he's referring back to verse 30. Um, uh, where is it? Verse, the first one be silent. Um, verse 28, thank you. <laughs> it's like, I lost my place. If there is no one to interpret, verse 28, y'all didn't hear Chris from the front row. Verse 28, if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. No, it's not verse 28. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So verse 29, there's a weighing of what is said. I said that when I was in that part, just mentioned it real briefly, the weighing comes from Scripture. We're weighing it by Scripture. So we've got some other texts that tell us that women should not be teaching with authority in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Again, very offensive to us, but, but that's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it's based, Paul says, on one of the books of Moses, Genesis, the creation account. That's where this truth is rooted. And so in 1 Timothy 2, he says, hey, Scripture says this back in the creation account. Here he says, the law says this. Law can just stand for all of the Old Testament. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, He used the same argument. It's rooted back in creation account. God made men and women different, so we're going to express that difference in some specific ways. So again, what we would say is that value, our holiness, who we are, all of that is equal before God. There's no distinction gender-wise. We're we're all people before God, Galatians 3.23. We're all one in Christ. But God calls us to different roles, and it has something to do with creation. And it's mysterious to us, and we don't fully understand it. At some level, we just say, well, I trust Jesus saved me. Jesus gave his life for me, so I'm going to obey what he says, and I don't always fully understand all the details of that. Paul's rooting it somehow in the creation order and saying God creating things, uh, created things good. He created man and woman to work with each other in this complementary way, and that's a good thing, and that's a blessing. And so we want to try to express that in how we do life. So we believe at this church that that's expressed in two primary ways. One, that the men are tasked with the role of being elders and pastors at the church. So we're kind of, we're kind of uh, speaking the truth in a way that Adam should have, but didn't in the creation account. I think that's the most kind of literary, poetic way to say it. You look back at the garden and the fall into sin, and Adam was just silent. Adam was probably sitting on the couch playing video games, 
when the serpent was talking to Eve. He just didn't say anything. And so again, I don't think this is absolute science for the women, it, uh, silence for the women. This is more like, no, the, the men are the ones that are supposed to weigh what is said. The, the men are the ones that are supposed to guard the gate and push back lies and say, no, that's not okay. We're not going to have that here. And so that's this unique role of the men in the church. So I think there's a, a literary sense to that. But again, I grew up in the same culture you did. Like these, these words strike me as strange just like they do to you because I grew up in a feminist culture that taught that we're equal in every way. And so these, these are hard verses to grapple with. But we would teach that, that men are called to be the pastors and elders and then that men are supposed to lead in the home in the sense of sacrificial, loving, um, servant leadership. That's what leadership is supposed to look like. So if there's any question like, well, what does that look like? Does it mean being domineering? Nope, that's not what it means. It means sacrificial servant leadership. It means looking to Jesus, the Savior and King of the universe who died for us, who washed feet, who humbled himself. That's what servant leadership should look like in the home and in the church. That, that's our bar. That's, that's what we're aiming for. So again, we have to recognize, we have to always be honest when we read texts that seem to disagree with our culture, that are countercultural. Like, yeah, that is weird. That seems to disagree with my culture, but I guess I'm going to try to defer to what God says in his word. Um, so again, our theological stance, men and women are equal in their value and dignity before God. Just as though members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can display functional differences without a lack of dignity, so also it is possible that gender roles can be different without being demeaning. We can be different without that being demeaning. We got to confess, we've messed this up a lot over the years. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. And I'm sorry for that. For those of you that have been hurt by people not doing this well, that's wrong. But that doesn't mean it's not possible for us to play slightly different roles and honor Jesus and love each other well in that. So again, we would see that men should, should lead and women should respect their husbands. Ephesians 5 is the big text on that, that there's kind of this complementary role that's played there. Um, and then we only have male elders and pastors uh, in the church. Because of this and, and many other passages, again, going back to 1 Corinthians 11, going back to 1 Timothy 2, where it's the same kind of logic of, well, look back to creation. There was an order established in creation, so we want to kind of live that out in certain ways in our home and in our churches. So again, you could have different uh, ideas on that than me. I'd love to talk to you about it. We'd love to kind of sort it through. Uh, we're still learning here as well, but we have a statement in our uh, constitution. You can see that online, or you could get a paper copy in the hallway. We've got kind of a statement on women in ministry and other things about that in the text. I grabbed a picture here of an Amish family, and I think the Amish, among Christian traditions, kind of might represent one of the most countercultural edges, right? Like the farthest out there of when we think of being a countercultural Christian, kind of standing against the norms of culture. Now, I want to respect the Amish. I think there's a lot of great folks that come up through the Amish community, and so this is not meant to demean them, but I would disagree on their application of Scripture. I would say sometimes they focus too much on secondary and tertiary things, right? So here's a biblical principle. There's a biblical principle of modesty, right? We're commanded to be modest in the way that we dress, and then they might take that to an extreme and turn that into a uniform. We've all got to wear these kinds of clothes, these colors, these things, right? And so that's the hard work that we're doing as Christians of saying, okay, there is a too far, 
of being too countercultural and making secondary things primary things, right? That is possible in the Christian tradition. We want to walk in such a way that we're not uh, more countercultural than Jesus actually calls us to be, but we also want, want to be ready and brave to be countercultural and say, yeah, the world hated Jesus and the world's going to hate me sometimes and think I'm ridiculous. So I just want to challenge you to that. And here's another way of saying it. Are there any things in your life where God is allowed to contradict you in his word? Or do you have a faith concept where you're like, Jesus can only agree with me because I'm, I'm the arbiter of truth, right? I think that's, that's where a lot of modern folks are going. That's, that's the temptation of all of us. Even during our confession time, I think Chris articulated this so well. There's this, there's this thing in us where we want to make ourselves king. Do you see yourself as king? Do you see yourself as in charge or... Or you see, God is in charge, and he gets to correct me. And that's, that's what I want to call you to, not so that you can be so obedient that God will be forced to love you. But what I want you to see is Jesus loved you already. He gave himself for you. And so because of that, you can trust him. Even in areas where it, it seems weird, it seems difficult, you can trust him because he's proven himself to you. So, so check your heart. Think through the things in the Bible that are difficult for you, um, struggle through the nuances of the text. Like sometimes we have cultural misunderstandings. Sometimes we just got to take it. It's just a hard text. We're just like, man, that's, that's hard. Um, but here are the two big ideas with gender. Men, we don't need no more domineering men, and we don't need more passive men. We need sacrificial servant leaders. You're willing to initiate love and service and bleed for people and wash people's feet. That's what manhood is. Don't miss that. We're not asking for more passivity and we're not asking for more, more domination. We're saying sacrificial servant leadership. Women, we need your gifts. We might say that there's this unique call to respect your husband in the home. We might say that, that there's a, a, an office in the church, elders and pastors, that's, that we don't allow women to participate in, but we need you. I need, I need to learn from you. I need you to exhort me. I need you to pray for me. I need you to challenge me. We need each other in the body of Christ. We said that in 1 Corinthians 11. God has gifted you and blessed you. We need your gifts. We're not going to function fully without you. Don't, don't miss that. Last point. Point three, order relies on biblical authority. Uh, the biblical authority is going to be the, the Supreme Court for us. Um, the, one of the ways that the founders said this was sola scriptura. Uh, scripture alone is our final authority. Uh, we listen to what men have to say. We honor traditions of people. We filter it through other things that we've been taught. But the scripture is the bottom line, biblical authority. Verse 36, he says, Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So you've got this instance where people are like, hey, God, God gave me something. I have to share it. I can't be stopped. And because God gave me some truth, I'm in charge. Paul's like, no, actually, there's an authority higher than you. You, you can withhold your gift. You can be silent. You can let other people speak. And the scripture is the final arbiter of that truth. We weigh what others say, as he said in verse 29. So he says, you've got to acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. Verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. 
Harsh language from Paul. He's, he's pulling out his authority card, pulling out his, his badge as an apostle, right? He's seen the risen Christ. He's been commissioned by Christ to speak with authority to who Jesus is and write scripture, our final biblical authority. Verse 40, but all things, oh, excuse me, 39. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Again, we've said this is speaking the truth in a language people can understand and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Joked about this in different ways. Uh, the church is generally divided into churches that focus on speaking in tongues a lot in the miraculous, and then other churches that are a little freaked out about that. Our tradition is a little more on the freaked out by that side, right? But we have to honor these verses that say, hey, don't forbid it. Just because something makes you uncomfortable, it seems weird, don't forbid it, right? Although we will commit to focus on the clear speech of God's Word, the clear teaching of God's Word. That'll be the center, going back to what we saw last week. Verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. Decently and in order. The word decent can also mean kind of like beautiful. Things can, things can be beautiful in the church. I know that's hard to imagine, right? <laughs> We're so often so dysfunctional, but the call is to lift up Jesus. And as we lift up Jesus, then our life together is decent and beautiful and, and orderly. Built around, again, this orderly framework of not just orderly personalities, but an order that says, I'm going to honor and defer to you. I'm going to lift up God's scripture as the final authority. I'm going to say that he's the one that's in charge. So order relies on biblical authority. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I grabbed a picture of a, of a light uh, or multiple lights on a dark wooded path. Uh, we're getting to a point now where we almost never go without lights in the modern world. Most of us have phones that have a flashlight on them. Uh, so we less and less have the experience of, of stumbling in the dark, right? Anybody remember the last time you were walking somewhere in the dark and were stumbling? Raise your hand if you can remember that. Okay, some of you have done that. Yeah. That's a very scary feeling. You're like in a hotel. You wake up in the middle of the night. And you're like, wait, where am I? I can't see anything. There's just like a red dot on the ceiling. You don't know where you are, Right? God is telling us that his word is what lights our path, is what shows us where to go. It keeps us from twisting our ankle, falling, stumbling, breaking something, being confused. It brings clarity. It helps us to understand everything else. I love the way Calvin described it. He said, God's constantly speaking through creation, right? We see that God is there. We can understand his speech. It says in in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. Like creation's always telling us that God is there. But Calvin said, the Bible is kind of like putting on glasses so we can actually read it rightly. We can, we can understand it better. So God's always speaking through creation, and he speaks in very specific, guided ways, biblical authority through the Scripture. So we, we take the words of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, we bind them together in a book, and we say, this is our final authority. This is our Supreme Court to weigh what is said in the church. Something weird is said. We weigh it and we go, well, is that, is that what the Bible says? Does that line up with what the Scripture says? And here's a really important application. I want you to be the kind of church that feels the freedom to continue to challenge me or any other teachers at this church when you feel like we've said something that's weird or off or not biblical. When we're teaching, sometimes I think they're just obvious things and I just try to assert it. Uh, but usually what I'm trying to do is teach this and say, and here's where that's found in the Scripture, right? I'm kind of trying to show you where the lines go back to the Bible itself. And, and when you feel like I haven't done that, will you, will you challenge me on that? Because I want to continue to be faithful. And one of the ways that I'll continue to be faithful to teach the Word is, is if you pray for me 
and encourage me and exhort me to be faithful to the word. Your accountability will help me to be honest. If we ever turn into this kind of church where you just listen to whatever I say because I'm the authority and you never challenge me, guess what's going to happen then? I'm probably going to drift from the scripture. But as long as, as this, is the biblical, this is the authority, the biblical authority is what we all weigh what is said here and taught here, whether it's from the pulpit or in a Sunday school class or in a small group, as long as that's the standard, we're going to actually help each other to be more faithful to the Scripture. It's, it's a group accountability. Um, don't be a jerk about it, right? But continue to challenge me. Help me to be faithful uh, in my calling. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a famous verse on biblical authority. If you don't know this one, this is a good one. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, this is a very literal word. Different translations say it. Sometimes they say inspired, but it's, it's literally breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We're told that the Scripture is our authority. 1 John 4. Beloved, don't believe every spirit, right? Translation, just because something is spiritual doesn't mean it's true. And more and more, our world is becoming more spiritual and less grounded in Scripture. So John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Saying this is common. It was common back then, and it's common today. 1 John 4, 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That's how we know, right? Again, we're tempted to say, yeah, it seemed spiritual, Right? Like there was some woo-woo, miraculous stuff going on. It must be true. No, he's saying if there's a true confession of Jesus, that's one of our governors. If it's in line with the scripture, Paul is saying in our passage, that's one of the ways we know the spirit is there. John goes on in 1 John 4, verse 6 to say this. We're from God. Again, he's, he's throwing down the, the apostle card here. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The apostles in the New Testament affirm their apostolic authority. We have this weird idea that's going around that, that the Bible is just like a big accident. Have you all ever heard that? Anybody taken any college classes on the Bible? Or maybe you've just watched some YouTube videos on the Bible. There's this idea that, you know, the apostles were kind of writing stuff, and they just kind of accidentally wrote the Bible. and just happened. No, they knew they were speaking authoritatively for Jesus. He commissioned them. He sent them out. That's what apostle means. They're Jesus' sent ones. Paul confirms that Luke was writing Scripture. He uses that language. Peter affirms that Paul was writing Scripture. They knew they were writing Scripture. It wasn't just a big accident. Now, now did it unfold in layers in a process over time? Yes. They were men living during the time of Jesus that after his resurrection started writing his words, and it took a while for it to all come together. There are all kinds of weird conspiracy theories now. You might hear about the Council of Nicaea, Nicene Creed, where people say, oh, that was like some cigar-filled backroom deal where these guys, you know, were oppressing this truth and that truth. No, it's just historically not true. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Um, Historically, these were men, pastors, bishops, that had suffered for Jesus. They'd been persecuted for following Jesus. And then the emperor figures out, hey, it'd it'd be more popular for me to make Christianity legal. So he makes Christianity legal. He calls a council to get together some of the truth of the church and what Christians believe. And then they disagreed with them. Like, like what they came up with at the Council of Nicaea disagreed 
with Constantine the emperor. So, so don't fall for these kind of like retellings of history that are like, oh, it's all made up and it's this twisted story and they suppressed some things and other things. No, the, the way the scriptures came to be was, was very clear. It testified to the apostles' authority as John and Paul are saying in these texts I've already read, but also ultimately it, it testified to Jesus Christ. One of the ways we get this backwards is expressed in a song. It's a song called Creed that Rich Mullins did years ago. Y'all might have sung this in church sometime. Uh, it says, I, I did not make it. No, it is making me. You ever heard that line? It's about the Apostles' Creed, I think, early, early faith creeds. It says, I didn't make it. It is making me. I think that's a good way to understand how the scriptures came together. Christians didn't make the Bible. The Bible made Christians. It's like me trying to prove to you that my mother is my mother. That's kind of what the Council of Nicaea did when they said, this is Bible and that's not. They were saying, yeah, this is our mother. These are the books that testified to Jesus that gave birth to us. The gospel message miraculously gave birth to new life, faith in Christians. And then they looked back and they're like, oh yeah, that was the message. I got that one from Luke and I got that one from Paul and we put them all together in a book. Now we've got a book. They're collected together. I'd love to talk to you more about that process. It's a messy process, but it's a process that's a really good and beautiful process. We, we have a book of scriptures, authority that we can rely on. Uh, sometimes the study of this is called canonicity. Canon is just this Greek word for, for measure, right? This is our measuring tape. This is our standard. I'd love to help you uh, learn if you want to learn more on that subject, because that's the thing that's kind of being picked at right now in our culture, as more and more people are, are leaving the church and saying, oh, this is crazy, and it's all a conspiracy theory. Um, there's just untruths that are being uh, circulated right now on this subject. How do we apply this? Um, number one, are you listening to Scripture yourself on a daily basis? Is Scripture guiding your life? It can look like different things for different people, right? Some people love to, to read big swaths of the Scripture, try to finish the whole thing in a year. Others of you, you just need to cling to a verse that reminds you that Jesus is faithful and he loves you, and you just need to hammer that one verse again and again and go back to it and go back to it. But are you guiding and leading your life? Are you founding your life? Are you relying on biblical authority in your life? It's so important. It, it feeds us. It guides us. It's a lamp to our path. And then secondly, attend a church that preaches the Bible. We, we think we're one of those churches. We're glad you're here. Chances are that God's going to move you to another church someday. The, just the demographics of our city, many people here move in and out. And if God does that, go find a church that's going to talk about Jesus and preach from the Bible. That's the most important thing. Everything else is kind of secondary. I mean, I like the other things we do, but the Bible is the most important thing. Look for that when you go to find a church, a church that faithfully preaches the Bible, that preaches it in context, and not just, you know, some guy making up everything on his own. There, there are some churches that are falling apart in our city right now. Pray, pray for the churches. Pray that God would raise up more and more faithful churches that would preach the Word of God. There are many faithful churches, but there are some churches that have been faithful that are that are sliding from the truth. I've been counseling with people and talking to people that are in churches where they're not even, they're not preaching the truth anymore. They're sliding from that. They're, they're falling apart. Pray for the churches in our community and wherever God takes you, that we would be faithful to biblical authority, that we would rest everything here. Okay, we need to wrap up here. Big idea again is that God wants to build his churches on order. 
And the order is not just the right personality, right? The order doesn't just mean that you're really good with spreadsheets, although we need your gifts too. The order is ultimately an order of, of trusting God's word, honoring one another, loving God, loving one another, building everything on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So the way he summarizes this in verse 33 is God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And then again in verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. The bad news of the gospel, you know the gospel, the good news of Christ, it's really bad news and good news. So let's talk about the bad news first. The bad news is that all of us have disordered lives. None of us live up to the order of God's goodness in his instruction, even those of us with the most orderly personalities. We often default to, to selfishness. We don't love the way that God has called us to love. We don't stand perfectly for his justice and his righteousness. The Bible calls that sin. We all live lives of disorder and chaos and brokenness, and much of that is rooted in our own sin. Some of that is is a result of others who have sinned against us, the brokenness in the world. But the good news is that God loved us in Christ. Jesus Christ was the one human that was perfectly orderly. And by perfectly orderly, I mean he obeyed God. He obeyed God's word. Down to the letter, the details of God's difficult-to-follow law But even more than that, the spirit of the law. He loved God. He loved other people. He always said what was right. He always did what was right. And so he shows us what order looks like. He's the standard of orderliness. If if you leave today unsure of what the standard is, Jesus is the standard. But more than setting the standard, he became a substitute for us. He died in our place. He was literally torn to pieces. His life was disordered. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin, so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was torn apart for you and me. He was the only human that was ever orderly. He was just ripped to shreds for you and for me. He died in our place. He became our perfect substitute. But beyond that, he rose from the grave. He's reordered everything. He's rebuilding a new creation. And so as we get confused about what this looks like and and how we can get there, the number one place is just looking to him, saying, he's the standard. I broke that standard, but he gave himself for me. He's reordering my life, so, so trust him, follow him. Let me pray. God, thank you that you loved us so much. You gave yourself for us. Help us to walk in faithfulness to you. We pray that you would transform us in Jesus' name. Amen.